Our text today sees Jesus giving a prophecy to his disciples. Now, some of this prophecy that we'll read, some of it has happened, some of it has yet to happen. Big part of this prophecy refers to the fall of Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple, which actually did occur in 70 AD, around 40 years or so after Jesus prophesied that it would. Now, this prophecy also includes depictions of the end times. Now, the study of the end times, or eschatology, is very complex, complicated, and often confusing. Sometimes it can be intentionally vague, sometimes it can be layered with cultural context, and there are many differing opinions by a lot of people that are smarter than me. Even though it may not be as easy to understand as the Sermon on the Mount or as joyful to receive as a simple psalm, we should not shy away from Jesus' words here. I think oftentimes we can shy away from end times or prophecy because it can tell us so much about how we ought to live now. Keeping the end in sight is often uncomfortable. But... If you are a Christian, then you should know by now that submitting your life to Christ doesn't mean only reading the easy parts of the Bible or only taking vague life lessons from it. The Bible is the living and breathing Word of God. As Paul writes in 2 Timothy, all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete and equipped for every good work. And yes, that includes prophecies of the end times. And if you do not consider yourself a Christian, I'm not going to make a joke and say, oh, what a fun week for you to be here for. No. Our passage displays a beautiful picture of God as both just and merciful, all-powerful and reigning. This is the perfect week for you to be here. So I ask that we all go into this passage with humble hearts, humble minds, ready to receive what the Lord will have for us in his word. It will be worth it. What we will find in this passage is a glorious truth. The just and merciful Lord's return in judgment is sure, so watch your hearts and depend on him. Let me say that again. The just and merciful Lord's return in judgment is sure, so watch your hearts and depend on him. So let's read our text to see Jesus' prophecy regarding the fall of Jerusalem and his return. We're going to start in verse 5 of chapter 21. And while some were speaking of the temple, how it was adorned with noble stones and offerings, he, referring to Jesus, said, as for these stones, you will see, the days will come where there will not be one left here, one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And they asked him, Teacher, when will these things be, and what will be the sign that these things are about to take place? And he said, See that you are not led astray, for many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and the time is at hand. Do not go after them. And when you hear of wars and tumults, do not be afraid, for these things must first take place. But the end would not be at once. Then he said to them, Nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. 
There will be great earthquakes, and in various places famines and pestilences, and there will be terrors and great signs from heaven. But before all of this, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons, and you will be brought before kings and governors for my name's sake. This will be your opportunity to bear witness. Settle it therefore in your minds not to meditate beforehand how to answer, for I will give you a mouth and wisdom which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. You will be delivered up even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends, and some of you they will put to death. You will be hated by all for my name's sake, but not a hair of your head will perish. By your endurance you will gain your lives. But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then you know its desolation has come near. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains, and let those who are inside the city depart, and let not those who are out in the country enter it, for these are the days of vengeance to fulfill all that is written. Alas, for women who are pregnant, and for those who are nursing infants in those times, for there will be great distress upon the earth and wrath against this people. They will fall by the edge of the sword and be led captive among all nations, and Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. And there will be signs and sun and moon and stars, and on the earth distress of nations and perplexity because of the roaring of the sea and the waves, people fainting with fear and with foreboding of what is coming on in the world. For the powers of the heavens will be shaken. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory, now when those things begin to take place, straighten up and raise your heads because your redemption is drawing near. And he told them a parable. Look at the fig tree and all the trees. As soon as they come out in leaf, you see for yourselves and know that summer is already near. So also when you see these things taking place, you know that the kingdom of God is near. Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all has taken place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But watch yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and cares of this life, and that day come upon you suddenly like a trap, for it will come upon all who dwell on the face of the whole earth. But stay awake at all times, praying that you may have the strength to escape all these things that are going to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. And every day he was teaching in the temple, and that night he went out and lodged on the mount called Olivet. And early in the morning all the people came to him in the temple to hear him. All right. <clears throat> so let's start out easy. Our text starts with verses 5 through 7, when Jesus and his disciples are in the temple of Jerusalem in Israel. Now this temple is absolutely beautiful, and the disciples were right to admire it in verse 5. It was not only the center of worship in the city, but it was also a cultural symbol for the Jewish people. It was also huge with various courtyards and rooms for sacrifices and worship and baths. So it's very surprising when Jesus says in verse 6 that it will all be coming down. The days will come where there will not be left here one stone upon another. Seems like Jesus is kind of raining on their parade, right? They're complimenting the building, and Jesus says, don't bother, it's going to come down. The disciples respond quickly, asking Jesus, when is this going to happen? 
they've learned to respect his words, right? They don't doubt him like they have in the past. They believe him, and that's actually more scary than if he's not telling the truth. They don't doubt what he's saying, but they're shocked. The temple represented the power and authority of the Jewish religious system. To have the temple be destroyed would be like as shocking as the White House being destroyed for us today. It's a symbol. It's a building that represents the country. The disciples are also not challenging Jesus' words because this entire time of his time on earth, he has been criticizing the systematic Jewish religious system during his entire time. But for the entire temple to come down, the disciples must have been traumatized by even the thought of it. But it makes sense, right? In the past few chapters, Jesus has cleared out those using the temple for greed, called out the religious leaders by name, and has not been shy about describing their condemnation. The Jewish leaders of that day were using their religion as an excuse to take money for the poor, spiritually abuse the weak, and pridefully preach more than they practiced. In a place where they were supposed to be worshiping God, they were instead worshiping themselves. Now, as I previously mentioned, the temple of Jerusalem was actually destroyed in 70 AD by the Roman emperor Titus. Jesus' words came true around 40 years later. Just as the Jewish leaders would later give up Jesus to the Roman emperor to be killed on the cross, so God gave up Jerusalem to Rome to be destroyed. And just in the last chapter, they complained about having to pay taxes to Caesar, and yet later they call on Caesar to kill their Messiah. Now Jesus does not directly answer his disciples' question on when this will happen. But instead, he kind of helps his disciples prepare for that event. He tells them in verses 8 and 9, not to be led astray by those who come in his name, and not to be scared when hearing of wars and tumults. It's a little broader than the specific answer that the disciples were probably hoping for, but Jesus isn't concerned with giving them a way out. He cares far too much for his disciples to tell them, yeah, you know, on the 31st, around noon or so, Just sneak out the back door and you'll be fine. No. Instead, he teaches them how to survive it and encourages them that the kingdom of God is coming. And look at the end of verse 9. These things must first take place, but the end will not be all at once. Now, as I mentioned before, eschatology or the study of end times is very complicated and often confusing. There are scholars much, much smarter than me that have spent their entire lives in the text. And there are a lot of different opinions. But looking at the Bible, it is clear that there are a few big milestones or events, right? God creates the world. God gives the law. God comes in human form, Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ dies. Jesus Christ resurrects from the dead. Jesus Christ ascends into heaven And then Jesus Christ returns to judge the living and the dead. Right now, in 2024, we are currently between Jesus' ascension into heaven and Jesus' return back down to earth. This entire period of time, from around 30 AD to the present day right now, is technically categorized as the end times. 
So congratulations. We're all living in the end times. Pop the champagne, right? We are also accustomed to thinking of the end times as being like a big event, like a, an apocalypse, right? But the Bible actually describes the end times as a lengthy period of history. That's why Jesus says the end will not be all at once. Think of it this way. Once you turn 18, you're an adult. And you will be an adult until you die. That's a very long period of time in which you are an adult. Once Jesus completed his work on earth, that is, living a sinless life, perfect life, then taking on our death and our punishment for our sins, then raising from the dead three days later and ascending back into heaven, the only major event left is for him to return to judge the living and the dead. Thus, we are in the end times, the time between Jesus' first and second coming, the final chapters of God's story with humanity. And I know this might be confusing, but remember that Jesus is literally God. God is outside of time, and even though we might have trouble seeing an almost 2,000-year period as a single time in history, and a more in uh, immortal and everlasting God just wouldn't see it that way. So the destruction of Jerusalem, with all that it means, both spiritually and culturally, may feel like the end of the world to its disciples. It's only the beginning of the end. It's not a sign of the end times coming. It's a major event that signifies to the world that we are in the end times. Just like the first snowfall doesn't mean that winter is coming. It means that winter is already here. So let's return to Jesus' prophecy. Verses 8 through 19 all describe the end times, what the disciples can expect, and how they ought to survive. Now there is some debate about how specifically these verses fall within the timeline of the end times. Do they describe events that will happen only around the fall of Jerusalem in 70 A.D.? Or do they describe events within the end times as a whole, from Jesus' ascension until today? Now, my personal opinion is that verses 8 through 9 refer to the time before the fall of Jerusalem. Jesus is priming his disciples for the chaos and distractions that will categorize the end times. He's saying, don't be afraid, for these things must first take place before his return. That's the good news. The bad news is that the end will not be all at once, but will be an entire period of history. Then, again, in my opinion, verses 10 through 11 describe the end times as a whole, what will happen in the world with wars, natural disasters, signs from heaven. Then verses 12 through 19 describe what will happen to the disciples of Jesus following his ascension like persecution, being brought before leaders, giving opportunity to witness, betrayal from friends and family, and also describes the hope that they have. Jesus will give them the words to say, their souls will not perish, they will endure. I think Jesus is mainly giving his disciples specific advice for what they themselves will have to endure in the book of Acts after Jesus ascends into heaven. That's why at the beginning of verse 12, Jesus starts the sentence with, but before all of this, before he describes what the disciples will have to go through in the book of Acts. 
So just as the temple really did get destroyed in 70 AD, what Jesus predicts the disciples will go through in verses 12 through 19 does happen in the book of Acts. We saw a little bit of that this morning from Alice's reading. The disciples were heavily persecuted. They were thrown into prisons. They were brought before leaders to give witness to Christ, and some were even put to death. But by their endurance, they gained their lives with Christ. By keeping the faith, their eternity is secure in Him. This will be a time of great pain for the disciples, but in God's sovereignty, He will use it for the spread of His name and the redemption of His people. God's sovereign purpose in spreading the gospel, the good news of redemption and freedom from sins in Christ, that purpose will be accomplished regardless of worldly powers trying to stop it. If a disciple is martyred and the others flee, then wherever they flee, the gospel will spread. It cannot be stopped because the sovereign God has decreed it. Not even persecution can thwart the loving plan of God to deliver his gospel to the ends of the earth. And this isn't God acting like a brutal war general sending his people to die. Look at verses 14 through 15. Jesus will be with them and even give them the words to say. And then an even greater comfort in verses 18 through 19. Just as persecution cannot stop a sovereign God, hatred and death cannot rip a disciple from God. It's clear that Jesus is speaking about eternal life in these verses. As just in verse 16, he says some of them will die. But in verse 18, he says that they will be protected. It's their souls that are protected with him, that are safe with him, no matter what. It is their endurance, as mentioned in verse 19, that will gain their lives. Their continued faithfulness in the face of persecution will show that they are gods, just like how Judas's betrayal showed that he was not. Next, we see Jesus shift back to the destruction of the temple and the fall of Jerusalem. Now, in these just five verses, we see so much of Jesus' character. We see his love for his disciples, his righteous judgment for those who deserve it, his compassion for his creation, and his devotion to the sovereign purposes of God. So let's look quickly at each of these. Jesus' love for his disciples can be seen right in verses 20 and 21. This is the closest answer that the disciples will get to their original question, right? When the armies are surrounding Jerusalem, its judgment has come. Flee to the mountains, away from the city. And normally, you would want to do the opposite. You would want to flee to the city for its giant walls to protect you. But not this time. Walls cannot stop God's judgment. Next, look at verse 22. These are the days of vengeance to fulfill all that is written. This is not a meaningless punishment or God simply being cruel. This is a divine vengeance against those who have turned against God to the point of killing his only son and then still not repenting even after that son was raised from the dead. Our God is extremely patient, but he is also just. There is a time and an opportunity for repentance, but afterward, there must be judgment. And this is good. 
No judgment means no justice. But thankfully, we have a just God who gives time to repent and gives justice. In verse 23, we see more of God's heart for his creation. This judgment and righteous vengeance will be tough upon the earth and its people, especially the vulnerable women and children. We've seen Jesus lament for Jerusalem in previous chapters. This is his creation, his people made in his image. Our God is not sadistic, but rather desires that all to be saved. Peter writes, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. And yet, in verse 24, we see Jesus' devotion to the sovereign purposes of God. The people who deserve judgment will fall by the sword. And look at the second part of verse 24. Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. Now remember that Gentiles are non-Jewish. So that includes the Romans that would later destroy Jerusalem. As I mentioned before, this is God sovereignly using the Gentiles to punish Jerusalem for their abandonment of the faith. They have become like Gentiles in the sense that they have lost their devotion to God, and so they are allowed to be taken over by the Gentiles. Their punishment is to be given in to the Gentiles in that way. God is using the Gentile Romans to deliver his judgment against Jerusalem. And even though Jesus loves his people and laments for their pain, he submits to the Father in knowing that their judgment is deserved. And Jesus would later submit to the Father in the same way as he prepared for the cross in a punishment that he did not deserve, praying, not my will, but yours be done. Now that final phrase in verse 24, until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled, is very interesting and can be interpreted a few different ways. Some take it to be the time in which Jerusalem will be overcome by Rome. Some believe that it refers to the book of Acts where the gospel was spread to the Gentiles, particularly by Paul. And some believe that we are still in the times of the Gentiles now, and it's kind of a similar phrase to the end times. Now, my belief is that this refers to the bringing in of Gentiles into the people of God, which started mainly in Acts, although there are some instances beforehand, and continues even until today. And this is beautiful, because in God's sovereignty, he rebukes the Jewish leader's feeling of superiority over the Gentiles by allowing Jerusalem to be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles, and then gives the Gentiles the gospel that the Jews have rejected. It's simultaneously judgment towards the Jews and mercy towards the Gentiles. But all is not lost for the Jewish believers as they are still God's chosen people from the beginning. Even though they have newly adopted Gentile brothers and sisters, they are still children of God and their redemption is coming. Now let's take a look at the part of the prophecy that has yet to come. All of the previous verses, again, at least in my opinion, refer to the time around the fall of Jerusalem in 70 AD and a general explanation of the end times as a whole. 
Now, in verses 25 to 28, Jesus is speaking of the future of the end times. That is, the part of the end times that has yet to happen to us. Because all of this was yet to happen to the disciples, but now it's yet to happen to us. So let's read verses 25 to 28 again. And there will be signs in sun and moon and stars and on the earth, distress of nations and perplexity because of the roaring of the sea and the waves, people fainting with fear and with foreboding of what is coming on in the world. For the powers of heavens will be shaken. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. And when these things begin to take place, straighten up and raise your heads because your redemption is drawing near. So we get a huge picture of signs and changes on the cosmic level, so much so that people are going to be fainting with fear. It's certainly an intense sight. There's a sense that people will know that something big is happening. It will be unmistakable. The powers of heavens being shaken isn't something that's easily missable. So don't worry. You're not going to accidentally sleep through the Lord's return. All of this language not only reflects the God of creation who created the sun and the moon and the stars and the heavens and the sea and the waves, but we've also seen throughout the book of Luke that Jesus himself also has control over that creation. Now verse 27 describes the Son of Man coming to earth in a cloud with power and great glory. Who is the Son of Man? Not only has Jesus referred to himself in that way throughout the four Gospels, but the Son of Man is a title throughout the Old Testament referring to the coming Messiah. It's a title of humility as Jesus came in the humble form of a human. But it's also a title of divinity as he is the perfect man, not just created in God's image, but also God himself. A great example of the Son of Man in the Old Testament comes from the book of Daniel, where Daniel prophesies, Behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man, and he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory in a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. This was the coming Messiah that the Jews were expecting, one who would come and liberate them from the Gentiles and be given all glory and all dominion. Now the Jewish leaders expected that Jesus' first coming would be a fulfillment of prophecies like this. That's why they were surprised and upset when Jesus instead came humbly and did not immediately overthrow the Roman government. But for Christ to come back for his people he first needed to redeem his people, to save them from their sins. Jesus overthrew a much bigger enemy to the Jews and all of mankind in his first coming. He overthrew sin and death. He came to earth as a human, lived a perfect life without sin, and then took all punishment for sin on the cross. Then he rose again three days later, defeating death. So now, if you repent and turn away from your sin, and accept the free gift of faith in Christ, you will be saved. Listen to this. You can reap the benefits of his first coming and escape the judgment of his second coming with a simple act of faith. That's God's gift to you. 
the writer of Hebrews says, So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Christ has won. He has defeated sin on the cross by taking all punishment on our behalf, and he has defeated death by raising from the grave. So now for his second coming, he comes in victory and glory because he has earned it by saving his people from sin and death. On Christ's first coming, he rode into Jerusalem on a humble donkey. On his second coming, he will come riding a cloud as the heavens and earth shake. Even though Jerusalem must first be punished for their sins in rejecting and killing their Savior, they will afterwards be given the opportunity to repent and to turn back to God before his second coming. What a beautiful picture of God as both just and merciful. That's why when this time comes, Jesus, is, Jesus encouraged his disciples to straighten up and raise your heads for your redemption is drawing near. Just as a whole crowd gets on their feet after waiting hours for a concert to start, Jesus returns and you will want to get up and look to the sky for your Redeemer's arrival. Now, to help his disciples understand, Jesus gives a parable of a fig tree in verses 29 through 33. He says that just as the leaves on the trees reveal themselves when summer begins, so when these things occur, you know that the kingdom of God is near. And when Jesus says, when you see these things taking place in verse 31, he's referring to what we just explored in the previous verses, right? The fall of Jerusalem the disciples witnessing and being persecuted, and the gospel being spread to the Gentiles and to the ends of the earth. Now, I know what you're thinking. All these things have taken place and are now recorded in this book. Does that mean that the kingdom of God is near? Yes. Remember what I said before. This is the end times now, the final chapters of God's story with humanity. To use Jesus' example, the trees are starting to come out in leaf, so it's summertime. We have currently been in that summer for almost 2,000 years now. And this is very different news to the Christian and the non-Christian. To the non-Christian, now is the time to repent before it is too late. If you are here, then you have heard the gospel and you have been told of your sin and the free grace of the free gift of grace that God has offered to you. Pray to God, confess and repent for your sins, have faith in Christ's sacrifice for you, and you will be saved. The book of Acts gives this promise: everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. It takes a simple act of faith. To the Christian. Your Lord is returning soon to bring you to yourself, himself. Rejoice. The pain and suffering of this world of sin is almost over. Those glimpses of heaven that you see will soon become your everlasting life. Paul writes in Romans that salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. We're almost home. 
And trust me, there will be more application later in the passage for Christians. But before we get there, there are two interesting verses left in this section. Verse 32 and 33. Verse 32 says, Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all has taken place. Now this has obviously caused a lot of confusion, right? Because generation in the English language means like a group of people living at one time, right? Uh, the millennials, the boomers, etc. But the Greek word here for generation means something different. A more accurate meaning refers to like a certain type of people. So previously in the book of Luke, Jesus has used this to describe a sinful group of people, right? He says, how much longer must I be with this generation, right? He wasn't just saying, okay, how long until all these people are going to die and a new generation will come? No, he meant, how long am I going to be with this sinful group of people? So with that translation, generation here means the sinful people that have rejected Christ. He's saying that there are sinful people who reject Christ now, and unfortunately, there are all going to be sinful people who reject Christ when I return. The generation of sinful people will not pass away until all this has taken place. The second interesting verse is 33. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Now practically, Jesus is referring directly to the fact that he will destroy and recreate heaven and earth when he returns, as described in the book of Revelation. But remember that the purpose of all these verses is to prepare his disciples for what is to come. All because they were admiring the temple and were shocked when they heard that it would come down. The temple represented the system of religion, but it had been infected by sin, so the entire system had to come down. And in that same way, on a much larger scale, the entire earth and heavens needed to be taken down. When God returns, he will not only return as judge, but also as creator. He created the heavens and the earth, and so it is his right to do with it as he pleases. But for those who belong to him, those who have been saved, and they are safe with him, even as heaven and earth are destroyed and recreated, because God's word, his character, his love are eternal and will not pass away. Psalm 102 says it beautifully. Of old you laid the foundation of the earth and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will remain. They will all wear out like a garment. You will change them like a robe and they will pass away. But you are the same and your years have no end. The children of your servants shall dwell secure. Their offspring shall be established before you. Okay, take a deep breath. We got through the end times prophecy. We've learned that the end times involve the fall of Jerusalem and the persecution of the disciples as they witnessed. That has already happened. Right now, we are in the time of the Gentiles, the end times where the gospel is being spread to the entire world so that all have opportunity to repent. Finally, in the future, the Son of Man will return to redeem his people. So what now? What do we do now as we wait? Jesus uses the previous verse, verse 33, to transition into how the disciples can practically prepare. Let's start there, 33, and read through 36. 
Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But watch yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and cares of this life, and that day come upon you suddenly like a trap. For it will come upon all who dwell on the face of the whole earth. But stay awake at all times, praying that you may have the strength to escape all these things that are going to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. First, we see the command to watch yourselves, to protect your heart from being weighed down by dissipation, drunkenness, and cares for this life. And what's interesting about those three, those three things to look out for is that cares of your life kind of seems like the odd one out, right? It makes complete sense to be sober-minded and to avoid drunkenness, but shouldn't we care about what's happening in our lives? Well, look at why Jesus is saying this at the end of verse 34. And that day come upon you suddenly like a trap. He's saying that the day of his return is coming soon, and you don't want to be surprised by it. To give an example, you probably shouldn't continue procrastinating packing for your vacation. Because that plane is taking off whether you're on it or not, and whether you're packed or not. Yes, you still have to go to work. Yes, you still have to make dinner. Yes, you still have to do your taxes, but that plane is leaving. So you also really should pack. Be prepared for Christ's return and don't let your hearts be weighed down by distractions. Because as verse 35 says, it will happen to everyone on the face of the earth. It's not going to happen over in Australia and then you have a day to prepare before it gets over here. Finally, in verse 36, Jesus gives a great summary command. Stay awake. And this is clearly not Jesus saying, continue to pull all-nighters until he comes back. You're going to get really tired. It's okay to go to sleep. It's okay to go to work. It's okay to continue with your life. But watch your heart. Don't get weighed down by this life and all the ways that it can distract you from Christ's coming. He is coming. We are in the end times. The destruction of the temple has occurred. The events of the book of Acts has occurred. And so next up is the Son of Man's return. Two-thirds of these events have already happened. So just as the weather gets nicer and the leaves start to appear on trees means summer is here, so the end times are here. Psalm 3 sums it up well. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he will make straight your paths. Acknowledge the Lord by praying for strength to endure and make it to the end. And remember that our God is a loving Father who cares for and protects his children. Rest in that. This was especially important for the disciples whom Jesus was speaking to, as he previously told them in verses 13 to 15, to rely on him for what to say when being brought before leaders and forced to give a response. They needed to pray for strength to endure those courts and the fall of Jerusalem itself. But today, pray for strength to focus on the Lord throughout all the distractions of this world. Inflation is high. Job security is tough. And streaming services come out with new enticing content like every second. But the Lord is coming, no matter how hard you try to distract yourself. As one commentator put it, no one will be found accidentally faithful on that day. 
Just as we naturally sin, it is so easy for us to naturally be sinful. Depend on the Lord in prayer and obedience, and he will bring you to the end. Let, let, me, let me paint a picture for you as we close. December 31st, 1999. New Year's Eve. Although this New Year's Eve was very special. Not just because of the new millennium, but also because of the fear that computer systems wouldn't be able to handle the date change. Since most computers were only able to change the last two digits of the year, once the year turned to 2000, many computers, the fear was, would just go back to 1900. And this would have caused an estimate of 400 to 600 billion dollars in global damages from financial services crashing, electricity providers crashing, causing power outages without end, and ATMs and traffic lights failing, causing chaos. Now, I was only four years old at the time, so obviously I don't remember much. But what I do remember is that the apocalypse did not happen on January 1st, 2000. Part of that was due to the diligent efforts of computer engineers and programmers and part of that was also just because minimal things happened, praise God. But imagine being a programmer on the evening of December 31st, 1999. You are working hard to prevent the Y2K disaster. There are billions of dollars and millions of lives on the line. You have to stay focused on your work as the evening continues. You know that midnight is coming and every minute it gets closer and closer. You don't have a watch or clock with you, so you don't know exactly what time it is, but you know midnight will inevitably come. You're working in the office, and your coworkers don't seem too concerned. They're actually throwing a New Year's Eve party with the Times Square celebration on the big screen and the drinks flowing. They keep offering you drinks and to try to take you away from your desk, but you know midnight is coming, and you have to work hard to solve this issue before that happens. So you'll go grab a slice of pizza you need to have dinner, but you won't get drunk or dance or pass out or sleep like the others. You have a job to do. In the same way, we need to stay awake, diligently awake, for the second coming of Christ. It is nearer now than when we first believed. And like a thief in the night, it can happen any second. James writes, Be patient, establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. John writes, abide in him so that when he comes, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame. Peter writes, the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. And the writer of Hebrews says, let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Church, let us take this encouragement from the ones who saw Christ rise into the heavens and understand their advice for what to do to prepare for when he comes back. Now, if you are interested, you can read more about what will occur when Jesus returns in the book of Revelation. I recommend reading it with a study Bible or a sermon series to help explain the prophecy. But for now, come and drink from the water of life without price. Repent and believe in the Lord. Repent and believe in his sacrifice 
for you. You don't have to pay anything. You don't have to donate extra. You don't have to pray a certain amount of times every day. You don't have to pray certain magic words. The Lord has died for you, and it's free, a free gift of grace. Please talk to me, Stephen, or anyone on the worship team after church if you'd like to hear more about God's free gift of grace and love towards you. And Christians, watch yourselves and stay awake. The Lord will come any minute now. Your redemption is at hand. Salvation is nearer now than when you first believed. Come, Lord Jesus.